The bar for television is set pretty low nowadays, isn't it? I mean, there's still some good sitcoms. I don't need another, you know, do we have talent or can we dance or sing or can we just have one of those shows? Like, it seems like America's Got Talent. Like, you can do anything on that show. So let's just cut to the chase. Let's do America's Got Talent, get Seacrest to host it, and let's just Welcome call it good. Welcome to... Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. Welcome to episode 85 of Touchpoint, the podcast at the top of your dial, middle of your dial, top of your dial. I don't know. There's no dials anymore, so I don't guess it really matters. But uh, I am one of your hosts, Reed Smith, joined as always by Chris Boyer. How's it going? Hey, Reed. I think you may have isolated half of our audience by mentioning dials. Like, what are dials? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're top of the internet. But we're top of the internet. Yeah, first link bookmarked in your browser. Or at least on your podcasting app, right? Yeah, the app in the top left of your screen. (laughs) Anyway, we're back. Episode 85, Touchpoint. Mm -hmm. So another episode, another week. Uh, This one is somewhat timely. So be sure you listen to this this week. That's right. Right. If you didn't listen to it this week, you're too late. (laughs) Just stop now. Go to a different episode. This is going to be an interesting episode. This has to do... Uh, with wearables, as you will know by the episode title, and uh, some recent news one of our big tech companies here uh, had in the last week or so. But before you do that, be sure you subscribe, rate, review, all that kind of good stuff. It's the best way Mm -hmm. to help others find us, and we certainly appreciate that support. Speaking of support, uh, maybe let's take a second and uh, hear about one of our sponsors. That's right, Reed. Today, patient expectations are the same as consumer expectations. They want it all, convenience and transparency. That's why from the moment a patient decides they need care, Loyal's intelligent healthcare-specific platform is their trusted companion, empowering their search and guiding their online journey. Loyal's solutions amplify the feedback you are receiving and provide answers to the questions that your patients are asking you online. Partnering with the nation's leading health systems, Loyal helps deliver a simply smarter digital patient experience. And so to learn more, visit them online at loyalhealth.com, loyalhealth.com, and tell them that the fine folks over at Touchpoint told you to do so. All right. What are we doing today? We are going to be talking about wearables and, you know, Reed, it's been a while since we really focused on wearables. I, I looked back into our annals of podcasting because, you know, we're, we're like in double digits, soon to be triple digits. And uh, it was way back in episode nine that we first started talking about wearables. Didn't seem like it was that long ago, but we talked about wearable technologies and medical devices. And that is actually, we're going to repurpose or replay the interview from that episode from our good friend, longtime friend, Dana Lewis. 
she discusses uh, her DIY artificial pancreas in the hashtag open APS movement that she is a part of and kicked off. So that's a movement that encourages patients and, and even those on the tech side of the equation to develop their own ways of solving medical device problems and not waiting on uh, all the big players, right? Yeah, like waiting on the FDA to approve it, which is the reason why, you know, we were thinking about this episode or this interview was because of some recent news that you called them our big tech company, but, you know, I'm not sure how much our they are. Apple last week introduced uh, some new products into the market, didn't they? Yeah, I own a lot of their devices. I can say our, I mean, I've, you know, I've been... I've been using I've been using an Apple laptop for like at least fifteen years now, so I feel like I feel like I was in on this from the beginning. Same. I was I was pre iPhone. I was a pre iPhone Apple user. I wonder if that's like, is that a thing? Is that a term? Surely it is. Like pre iPhone and post iPhone users. Like that's got to be a thing. <laughs> but yes, they did. They did uh, each e- every year about this time. They introduced, and we've gotten used to the cadence. I'm salivating thinking about it. The uh, the cadence of a new iPhone usually comes out this time of year. I actually was watching a webinar this week, and the guy referred to it as the iPhone season, almost like there were zombies, <laughs> like kind of you know walking towards the Apple stores. It really is, and they they look really cool. I'm trying not to look at them too terribly close because then I'll come up with a reason that I need one, or I'll start you know using like my, my kids' upgrade status or something so I can get. <laughs> Get a, new, get a new phone. But in any case, we're not going to talk about the, the phone itself, but it's something that uh, Apple introduced a couple of years ago, the Apple Watch. Um, and so this is their fourth iteration of that. And, and when we first saw this come out, it was it was cool. You know, it, it tied to your watch and you could do some voice texting and you know, get notifications on your wrist and you know, some of those types of things. And it was it was pretty cool. But you got it more because you were in that ecosystem and it was like, oh, that's cool. Let me try this out at something new, you know, whatever it is. Right. I mean, there wasn't a certainly a health reason, not that it couldn't track, you know, activity because it's always tracked activity to some degree. Yeah. Your, your, I guess it's your health app that they have. It's sort of like connected and kind of roughly tells you, you know, how many steps you took and you know, remind you to stand up. I might even reminds me to breathe, which is interesting. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize I needed to be reminded to breathe. But I think it's like a calming app. I don't know. That's pretty typical, like the application of the Apple Watch. But even back in episode nine, we were talking about the promise that these watches and other wearable devices could have on medical management. Because that's different. You know, it's different than like I'm going to tie into my like, you know, Nike fitness app or uh, Strava is one that I've used for cycling. It, it, you can use it for running and walking as well, I think. But you're not just tying into these types of things anymore, right? I mean, this is we're taking this one step further with this new iteration, the, the uh, Apple Watch 4, I believe is what it is. The big news was that the Apple Watch 4 had an FDA-approved ECG device, right? Uh, a device that can actually track your heartbeats. So not your pulse, that's different. Of course, it's making contact with your skin because it's on your wrist. And if I if I understand correctly, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you touch your finger to the crown or the dial, if you will, that creates the the two points uh, for I guess maybe like a single lead. I think I've heard it called a single lead measurement or reading um, to determine uh, or to kind of uh, you know it's heart rhythm 
So you can potentially pick up on irregular heartbeats or, or AFib. That sounds really cool, doesn't it, Reed? Imagine that. Now Apple is going to be an approved medical device, right? Uh, yeah, sure. That's what they said, right? That's what I got out of it. The FDA was there. They were on the stage, right? Was the FDA on the stage? Like they came out from the side and were like, we approve this or something. Like they were there with Johnny Ive. They both walked out. And uh, Will I Am, I think, was there as well. Exactly. And they uh, approved the device. You could talk a little bit about what does it mean to be a regulated medical device, which is what FDA would approve. You know, you could think about a, a variety of other of other devices, like an insulin pump or something like that, as opposed to a wearable wellness product. I assume there's some sort of FDA guidance around this. There sure is. And we found a white paper on it, Reed. It's called, Is Your Wearable a Regulated Medical Device? One of the things they, they indicate in there is a definition of what the FDA calls a general wellness product. That is a product that focuses on wellness and health, but it does not need to be necessarily regulated by the FDA. General wellness product. Okay. It really has two criteria. The first is that it's intended for only general wellness use as defined in the guidance. And it too, it presents a low risk to the safety of users and other persons. Yeah, that makes sense. So, hey, you know, anybody can put this on. It doesn't require probably a large amount of training. Uh, if you do it wrong, it's not going to harm you <laughs> or whatever, right? Like it's not, it's not going to overdose or underdose or something like that, I guess, right? Or shock you. Maybe that's Apple Watch 5. It's like paddles. You take two Apple Watches and you rub them together. FDA has further guidance on when it describes what they call the general wellness products intended use. So I want to kind of describe those to you. First, it says that an intended use that that relates to maintaining or encouraging a general state of health or healthy activity. So that makes sense, right? Yeah, that's like any sort of tracking device, right? Like pedometers, Fitbits, Apple Watches. A lot of iOS apps probably fall into that to that category, uh, but it it encourages general state of health or healthy activity. So it's more of a activity based kind of works for everybody. Like it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be specific to like me versus you, male versus female chronic illness or not, you know, kind of a deal. It's just like, hey, being active or, or standing throughout the day is good for you. So I'm going to remind you to stand. Exactly. Now, there's also a second, even more in-depth definition of what a general wellness product could be by the FDA. They say that it could also mean that its intended use relates to the role of a healthy lifestyle by helping to reduce the risk or impact of certain chronic diseases or conditions and where it is well understood and accepted that a healthy lifestyle choices may play an important role in the health outcomes for that disease or condition. That's a little more convoluted in my mind. Like I'm not sure exactly, like I would need an example. What comes to mind, I guess, maybe is dietary. 
Yeah. And there's a number of apps that are out there that are designed for like, I'm a type one diabetic, right? So there are a number one number of apps that are out there that are designed for type one diabetics to eat healthier when they're out in public at restaurants. So you can quickly check the app to determine, you know, what the nutritional value is if you're at a, you know, fast food chain restaurant, what have you. So you can manage your insulin intake, so to speak. It doesn't really tell you this is how much insulin you should take. But what it does tell you is the nutritional value of that meal that you're having. Gotcha. Okay. This is how the FDA defines what they call a general wellness product. So let's get back to this Apple Watch announcement. The news made it sound like this is a regulated medical device. But in all honesty, it's really what I guess the FDA would term a general wellness product. That's what it sounds like to me. But yeah, so I didn't watch the announcement live. I've got a job. I'm not a millennial. Sorry. Sorry. I feel like we've already had several millennial digs. I'll I'll refrain from that. That's the episode. But um, no, but but seriously, I was I was in the middle of doing some things, but I kept, you know, I would, you know, check some of the the tech websites, Wired or whoever that were like covering the event. And matter of fact, I even got a Facebook uh, buddy here in Austin that is an analyst. And so he was there. And so I would see some updates on Facebook from time to time that he was posting. And when I saw that, I was like, you know, I kept seeing this, like, it's an over-the-counter, you know, FDA device, you know, da-da-da-da-da and all this stuff. I kept thinking, like, huh, how'd they do that? Like, how'd they have time to do that? Like, that's what kept coming to mind. But but again, I wasn't, you know, spending a whole lot of time with it. My personal opinion was, I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, it's waterproof. It does this. It does that. Like, it looks like a decent update, maybe something worth checking out, you know, kind of a deal. Not because of the heart rhythm thing. I was directed to a Twitter thread that one of our show hosts on another show, The Exam Room, Dr. Brian Vardabidian, he put out on his website, 33charts.com. Go out there and check it out. But he linked to a Twitter thread on what actually was around the quote-unquote approval of the Apple Watch as an EKG device. And very clearly, this guy... Who, um, who was doing the Twitter thread, a guy named Adam Mason, he said that uh, the FDA did, FDA did not really approve the Apple Watch because that would involve extensive testing that, quite frankly, Apple didn't go through. I mean, they, they didn't submit the Apple Watch to an FDA test. They didn't have like a, you know, have it in a laboratory, have it, you know, tested, peer reviewed, anything like that. What FDA actually said about the device is that it features analyzed pulse rate data to identify episodes of irregular heart rhythms suggestive of AFib, and it provides a notification to the user. But, and this is important, it is not intended to provide a notification on every episode of irregular rhythms suggestive of AFib, and the absence of a notification is not intended to indicate (laughs) no disease is present. This is like... You can come in and play paintball, and if you die, it's not our problem. (laughs) Obviously, it says, like, well, it might work or it might not work. It's not approved by the FDA. Maybe a little bit of a misnomer or misspoken or mislabeled. I I don't know. You know, Apple's not exactly terrible at marketing. (laughs) It's cleared. 
by the FDA. You know, it, me- it meets these guidelines of like we talked about earlier. It seems to me, at least, it meets the guidelines of a general wellness product. But I think too, if you look at some of the things that Dr. V put out uh, through his through the email that he that he pushes out each week. And if you don't subscribe to that, I'd recommend it, but also a lot of information on his website. He does talk about that, that really this is possible based on an AI algorithm that was available in the last series, the, 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 the series three of the Apple watch. It's new, but not new, I guess. I mean, it's neat. It causes me a little bit of pause when, when I think about it. And, it, and honestly, it may be a reason I don't get the watch. It's because I don't want that feature. You don't want to know if you have a, a fit? Well, I, here's the problem. Do we understand, and I've seen several folks talk about this, Z-Dog MD that, that is very visible and prolific on like Facebook, for example. He gave kind of some bite-sized thoughts around that. And what I don't want personally is undue anxiety based on my thought that I might have AFib because of my Apple Watch. And that's what you run into. That like that's the potential. Like, could it save someone's life? I mean, I guess it could, but is it more likely to catch little instances of AFib that probably exist anyway? And, and to his point, what the point he was making was, what's that gonna do? Is that going to jam up ERs even more? Is that going to create unneeded doctor's appointments? You know, and those doctors are then going to have to run tests. Because if you come in and tell them, hey, I think I have AFib. Like this watch is telling me I've got a regular heartbeat. Well, they can't just say, ah, you're probably fine and just send you home. Like they're going to have to run tests. Wired.com did an article that says that this new Apple Watch could do more harm than good. And they talk about that. But they also talk about a different thing, Reed, which is that this whole thing around EKGs or ECGs, the medical community is a little bit suspicious of the fact that those things can actually give you any kind of realistic indication that you have AFib anyway. And this has been going on for a while, much longer than the Apple Watch has been around. So don't get me wrong, AFib is an important thing. They say that like what, between 2.7 and 6.1 million Americans possibly have AFib. It's the most common arrhythmia that's out there. The evidence suggests that maybe EKGs or ECG testing is not the right way to determine if you have AFib or not. So there was this group called the U.S. Preventable Services Task Force, or if you want to um, (laughs) refer to it lovingly as USPSTF. (laughs) Is that part of the UPMC system? (laughs) Anyway, sorry. We love these acronyms, don't we? (laughs) They're an independent volunteer panel of national experts in uh, disease prevention and evidence-based medicine. And they've been issuing recommendations on the value of these ECGs screenings for more than a decade. And just even recently, they said that they, they recommend against screening for cardiovascular disease with an ECG test because it provides insufficient evidence of cardiovascular risk, and it provides no meaningful advantage for managing cardiovascular risk. Well, it certainly doesn't provide any meaningful advantage when these don't integrate with anything. Like, this data is all fine and dandy, but like, when's Epic going to get on board, or Cerner, or whoever, you know, be able to pass this information along? I mean, I could even speak... Uh, a little bit aside here, but I can even speak to you know the health insurance that that we have at at our at our company. They give us these pedometers to wear, 
they're they're electronic and you got to attach them to like this USB thing and like upload your steps or whatever, you know, into their system. And, and basically they'll pay you to wear these things. I don't do it. Well, who in the world is going to charge a pedometer and wear that around? With the with the chance that you might get twenty dollars a quarter or something, you know, back. It's a good idea in theory, but like, why can't they just take the data from my Apple Watch? Like, I'm already wearing an Apple Watch. Why do I got to put a pedometer on? So anyway, this goes back to this bigger argument that we've had over and over again on numerous episodes about numerous pieces of technology is that nothing seems to talk to each other. So now we've just introduced another piece of technology into the market. Where, you know, consumers, especially when they first strap this thing on, I don't know, 7,400 times the first day are going to be running that test and holding their breath. And then the watch is going to tell them to breathe, you know, and then it's, <laughs> it's just like an endless cycle of like, you know, anxiety around, am I standing? Am I breathing? You know, do I have AFib? I mean, we're just like, it's, it's like too much information. <laughs> And I think that we could we could get into that conversation a little bit more because, you know, the thing is, is that I kind of fall on, on both sides of the equation here in that, yeah, you're right. We're going to get all this information and all this data that may or may not be connected to things. But, I mean, isn't that useful? Isn't that effective for me as a user to have that information? So at least I'm keeping track of that stuff. Because if before me having a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, I never counted my steps. I never, you know, wanted to make sure I was getting 10,000 steps a day or walking 10 flights of stairs. But now that I do, it like actually has improved the health of my life, Reed. So where do we fall on this one? I mean, if you're going to pay me, I'm just going to strap it to my dog and let it run around all day. <laughs> So you got to be careful what you incentivize too, right? And how you incentivize it. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered, and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. But I think along those lines, is it beneficial to use a person? Potentially. Is it beneficial to Apple? Absolutely. I mean, think about the information that they're going to be sucking back off of this thing. I mean, I don't know what the terms of service is, but I'm going to guess you forfeit all that to them. And so what are they going to be able to do with that? You look at the, is it 23andMe that sold all that information? So, I mean, you know, here we go down that same path again, right? Like, I'm going to use this so I know if I have AFib or not. It's like, well, that's fine. Really, you know, Apple's just bundling all this up. With all this great press around this new ECG monitoring, I think that there's going to be a higher likelihood of people actually rushing out to buy this device because they are thinking that it's going to be good for their health. And that speaks to the point, though, of wearable devices. I mean, are they even that good at monitoring your health? How effective are they? I found an article that actually was quoting a, a researcher from Cedar sinai about what wearable devices. He did some research on this. 
So first of all, we know that this wearable market is pretty lucrative. It's growing at a tremendous pace. I think they said it grew 10.3% year over year. You know, the second quarter of last year, it was already at 28.3 million. These are all the Fitbits, the Apple Watches, and every other thing, Mm -hmm. piece of technology that's out there tracking your health in certain way. And they're integrated into watches, wristbands, skin patches, shoes. In your clothes. We have smart clothes, you know, I mean, how much are you sweating? Are you getting dehydrated? I mean, all kinds of stuff. And we talked about this back in episode nine about how the data is being used. Not only is it giving you as a user some good health data, like I was talking about how many steps you walked or whatever, but like your pedometer example, it's going to wear. It's going back to, you know, whoever handed you that thing or whoever you bought it from or whatever, right? I mean, it's not just... The self-motivation part of this, uh, I don't think, you know, we need to just necessarily gloss over. If you getting a pedometer or a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or a connected scale or I don't know, any of this stuff motivates you to do things and you then in turn become healthier, super. That's good. But there's still a back end to all of this. You know, I mean, that data still is, it still does exist and it still is going somewhere and somebody's going to monetize that at some point if they're not already. I remember you mentioned that there was a football player that uh, the famous story of they, they attract all, you know, had all this stuff on to track themselves. And he was really worried about uh, all that tracking because it was being reported back to not only the team, but also the people that cover him for insurance. And he was worried about like, that's going to be used to influence his premiums. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, I believe he was a linebacker if I remember right. Well, they, they hit people for a living, probably more so than some of the other skill positions. You know, so he was worried that he goes to get life insurance and uh, somebody calls up the Philadelphia Eagles and they go, oh, yeah, well, you know, Reed over here, he hit people 20% more than everybody else on the team during that span of time. And they're like, Ew, you know, that that sounds like we're going to be dishing out some some dollars for some medical care as he gets older. Who owns the data? And medical experts can own the data if you're like using it for treatment plans or you're part of a research study. But get this, this doctor Dr. Spiegel from Cedar sinai he revealed that remote patient monitoring with any kind of conventional biosensor had no statistical significant impact after examining six key clinical outcomes, body mass index, looking at weight, waist circumference, body fat percentage, and systolic and diastolic blood pressure. So, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, obviously he was measuring something very specific. So he wasn't getting in the cardiovascular space necessarily. I think one thing that we also have not talked about is, and I believe I'm right on this. uh, Forgive me if I'm wrong or edit this out and post. (laughs) But the new Apple Watch also has the ability to measure falls. Is that right? That's right. So again, we're going to see the, the, the no statistically significant impact is going to change too. There's pros and cons to this. The con, you know, personally may be that somebody else is going to own all this data. You're really opening yourself up, so to speak. But the pro may be that, you know, we're really starting to learn and understand how to treat, how to deal with, how to diagnose quicker. So, yeah, so I mean, he does not have the significant impact when looking at those things. But he did find some other stuff, right? Yeah, well, he found he found exactly what you're saying, right? Is that it does have the potential for improving certain conditions like COPD and Parkinson's disease, hypertension, even lower back pain. 
But the statistical significance of those outcomes are dependent on why the user has purchased the device and what he or she is wanting to do with it. It's actually dependent upon the user's intent, right? It all falls back to the person wearing the thing. Like you said, you can put your pedometer on your dog, but if you are really concerned about wanting to lose weight, wanting to become you know, more healthy, you start wearing the device and actually checking in on the, the stats on that device, and in effect, improving your overall health. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of this, the younger you are, you're still invincible to some degree. Your dad is the one that has the heart attack until stuff starts happening or you have friends, stuff starts happening too, or whatever. Sometimes the motivation's not, not quite there. You, you mentioned earlier that might be the last time you, uh, you rip on millennials in this episode. Well, there's one other thing that I think might be interesting to close out the story, the conversation today, Reed. I found an infographic that was put out by Forbes magazine, as well as the IEEE. Do you remember IEEE, yeah, those guys? Yeah, absolutely. Well, they uh, went out to understand what the public opinion is on this new technology, these new wearable technology devices. And they went out and they asked millennial parents what they thought about that technology. Oh, boy. Want to hear what the results are? Yeah, let's hear it. (laughs) Okay. So we'll link to it. It's an infographic. But they basically said millennial parents that would agree to have their child use a wearable AI health tracker. Is this like a connected diaper? Or what is this we're talking about? If it's okay for like infants versus toddlers versus five-year-olds versus teens versus never. In the United States, millennial parents, this is what they said. For infants, they said that 13% of them agree that it would be helpful to have it. So I guess that's where your uh, your smart diaper comes yeah. into play here, yeah. right? It sends you a, a link to your Apple Watch. It says it's time to change the baby's diaper. <laughs> yeah. yeah, diaper saturation is at 63%. <laughs> okay, 19% would agree to have a wearable device on a toddler. Okay. 22% said they want they are okay to have it with 5 to 10-year-old. Hmm. And 32% of them, this is millennial parents now, would agree to have their teenager wear a wearable AI health tracker device. Like, what would that look like? It seems like for the infants and the little ones and your senior adult parents, it could be the same thing. It's all about like falls and diapers. For teens, I think think of a lot of other things you want to track them for. But Yeah, maybe their car. Health. I, mean, I don't track their. I don't track their health. They're fine. Maybe if they smoke a cigarette, I don't know. Yeah. Are there apps that can do that? I'm not yeah, their sure. Their inhale rate has changed. They actually did averages across the UK and India and China and Brazil. They just did a just a kind of a perception survey. They, I don't think they even gleaned any analysis out of it. But teens, by far, across the world, that's where millennial parents feel it's okay for them to wear a continuous health tracker. Interesting. It's the highest category. And the lowest category, infants. Hmm. Actually, the lowest category of all was never. In the United States, 14% of them said never. But in India, only 2% of people said never. And in China, only 2% of people said never. I mean, they're used to being tracked anyway, right? I suppose. So... Well, I mean, you know, the good news about this is it's all in the vaccines anyway. So there you go. (laughs) So 
wearables. I guess the the headline or the uh, the title of this episode is "Would You Wear a Wearable?" And read, knowing what we know today, and, and part of our conversation. What are your thoughts? Would you wear a wearable? I mean, I probably will. I'll probably have an an Apple Watch Four. I guess that's a yes. I think that most of us are wearing wearables without really knowing it. But like how we wear it, I think is really where the difference will be. And in my case, if you want to know my answer is, I probably would, but I have, I'm a particular use case, you know, I'm trying to actively stay healthy and track my steps. And, you know, I do have a chronic condition. So to me, that's appealing. But, uh, you know, I guess if I'm a millennial, though, I certainly want to slap that on my teenager. That's right. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website, but, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. Touchpoint. Touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready? Fight! All right, Reed, let's argue today about wearables. And really, the argument can be does using some kind of monitoring device, some kind of wearable, or using an app or a phone or whatever it might be, does using that to monitor your fitness actually help you be healthy? What do you think? Mm. Uh, that's a tough one. So I'm, I'm going to go actually probably with my personal opinion, which is no. I, I don't think it does. At least, at least, let me say this. It does not, at least over an extended period of time, maybe for that short burst when the gadget or whatever is new and kind of cool and interesting. But over a long period of time, I don't, I don't think it does. Because it's about utilization. Do you think people just get tired of it and stop using it after a while? Yeah. While I agree that 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 is a natural tendency, and I I just recently read a study that said 79% of people don't open an app after the first week of them downloading it. So I totally get it. But I think that if if you're using apps or phones or watches, whatever, to help monitor your fitness, it can actually help you be more healthy by teaching you good, healthy habits. So I would uh, actually say that maybe it's not the result of the phone or the app or the watch, but about the user, right? The user, if they are intending to use it this way to monitor their fitness, that it actually will help them be healthy. Maybe you're different because you don't have that interest. I mean, I think so much of that's driven by the motivation of the user that it doesn't really then ultimately matter about the wearable. Like they'd have gotten there either way. Like the, the wearable wasn't the thing that took them over 
you know, tip the scales, uh, so to speak. I, I could see your point there, but what I would say is that the wearable makes it much easier for them to do that. Sure, I could check and and manually track how many flights of stairs I walked in a day and keep a little tally, maybe on a little piece of paper or whatever. But the app or the phone or the watch, or whatever, is there all the time and it's actually can be tracking when I don't have to pay attention to it. So it makes it much easier for me to track. So I think from a usability perspective, if it's done right, it actually can do that. You're right. You don't need it, but it certainly helps. Yeah, kind of. You know, some of the activity-based trackers are good. Um, and and I think they allow people to compete and you can have, you know, competitions or even win stuff and, you know, some of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's somewhat motivating. But again, I think it's over a short period of time. Like it's not, you know, it's it's weeks and months maybe like a year, but not years. So I, I don't know that ultimately it it actually keeps you healthy. It may get you healthy, but it may not keep you healthy. Hmm. I think that what we have to do is we have to wait for Apple's new product, which is an embeddable RFID yeah. chip, right? That would keep track of your health and just constantly remind you and kind of nudge you the right way and be there for a long period of time. I, suddenly I started to think about how would they update that? How would you charge that? Do you have to like lay on top of a magnet or something? Yeah, you just put that little charger underneath your lower back and you'd be fine. <laughs> okay, I get it. I get it. Long standing, it doesn't keep you healthy. But it, but you're right. It, it can help. It can help guide you. I think I'm with you on that one. I certainly think that the wearables has given more awareness to these things. And, you know, even though doctors are kind of freaking out by the fact that the EKG or ECG monitoring on the Apple Watch might drive more people to the to the emergency room because they think they're having AFib. I think that just by having some kind of way to measure that is actually making it better and easier for them in the future to start to cure AFib or, you know, or at least work towards lowering the amount of AFib that's out there. Don't you think? It could. I think we're so far on the front end of this curve in utilization that it's going to be a while before we really understand what it's actually worth. Okay, welcome back. We are now uh, in the segment of the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast, and I have a very special guest, someone that I have known for many years and who is, I would characterize as a pioneer in this space, Dana Lewis. Dana, nice to have you here on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. So, Dana, I have been following you since the very, uh, almost seems like the advent of when Twitter came around. We were some of the earlier adopters talking about health and Twitter. I remember one of the very first Twitter hashtags was one I participated in, which is the one that you started, Healthcare Social Media. Yeah, it's hard to believe that it's been eight or nine years since we first started that, and Twitter's just a little bit older than that. But we've both come a really long way since then. But as probably you know as from your work with hospitals, um, in some cases, it doesn't feel like we've come all that far. 
Yeah, that's so true. It's sad to say it is true. But Dana, you have led a very interesting path since then. Why don't you tell people a little bit about your background and what you're doing now? Sure. And I want to start by giving a little context for how I came to actually create that hashtag and that conversation, because I actually created Hicksum or HCSM back when I was a college undergraduate. I was studying public relations. I knew I wanted to go into healthcare communications. And I started using Twitter to reach out and talk to people like you and Liazi at Mayo Clinic and have conversations about how our hospitals actually using this newfangled social media thing. Um, but I was asking the same questions to the same people over and over again and realizing it would actually be beneficial for them actually out in the field to talk with one another. And that's really how this healthcare hashtag Twitter chat was created. Um, the first one, not many people know this, we actually had just three or four people in a Google chat. Um, and we had a little G chat and said, you know, we want to make this publicly available. We think this hashtag might help us thread the conversation. So let's go over next week and try it. And that's really how this chat was born. Um, but because of that, that's actually what led me to get my first job out here in Seattle. Um, my then boss, Melissa Tizon, had been on Hixum, had seen what I was doing and said, you know, we really want somebody to come out here and help our hospital go digital. You know, a very common thing. But we specifically want you to help doctors connect with patients online. I've been a patient. I've been working in the space. And she said, you know, blank slate, let's figure out how to do it. So I actually came out to Swedish. It's a nonprofit health system here in Seattle and spent four or five years in a number of roles focusing on getting the organization connecting with the community, whether that was social media, not just for marketing, but for customer service and improving engagement in health, sharing health information, and also thinking about how does that translate to other things? What happens when you can use it for education? What happens when a patient comes into the ER? Or what happens when a patient tweets in and says, I think I'm having a stroke, what do I do? How does a hospital use digital to deal with all those situations? So that's really where my career started and has continued. But I've always had a deep interest in the technical side of things, both personally as well as professionally. So I've also spent the, the later years of my career working in analytics around social media. So not just you output stuff, but really how do you measure your impact and how do you use that data to decide what to do next and what's working and what's not? So I've done a lot of that. And then I've also more recently been spending time directly in the patient community working on do-it-yourself technology called the open source artificial pancreas system, which means I not only built my own artificial pancreas, but I also found a way to make it open source and share it with other people. And I'm interested in helping healthcare organizations figure out how to leverage patients who are so motivated that they are building their own medical devices. Digital, I've always believed, even when we were talking on Twitter many years ago, was an ability to, to draw a connection between the provider, between the patient. But you have taken this to a whole nother level. It's not just the pancreas, right? There's a whole movement associated with this. What you'll most commonly see now is the we are not waiting movement because you have to recognize that every patient has caregivers and a support system around them. And it's not always rebelling against the healthcare system. It's the healthcare system is traditionally working on this problem. And there might be a solution in a year, three years, five years, but I have a problem tonight and today. So how can I take the technology available to me that I can buy on Amazon, that I can find open source on the internet and how can I put it into use right now today this weekend when I have time to improve my quality of life and what's interesting to me is some people see that as rebellion I don't see it as rebellion it's a I'm going to solve this problem right now and there's so much of this that is being given back open source and that's means not just to other patients but to doctors to the traditional companies to the healthcare organization saying take this make it better make it shinier make it work for more people and there's a really big disconnect right there because of the risk perception the fear of 
you know, whether it's it's HIPAA or liability or regulation, there's a lot of these things built into our traditional system that is just a full-blown block in preventing some of this collaboration. And I think that's what we have to solve. We have to find how do we leverage this amazing technology and innovation? How can it be applied across the hospital, across the healthcare organization? How can we use it to help more people? Because at the end of the day, yes, these patients are e-patients. They're highly motivated. They care about helping other people. But nine times out of 10, they have a day job. They love their day job. They just want to live their life. This is not about creating a company, although sometimes patients do go off and do that. But a lot of times they just want to make it better for other people. And as a healthcare ecosystem, we have to stop preventing them from being able to do that and stop putting barriers in their way and figure out how to work together. Some people see it as hacking, but I often see it as building bridges and building interoperability that is missing in the medical devices. Because if you think about it, in in the diabetes space, for example, there are a few companies that make insulin pumps. There are two main ones right now in the U.S. that distribute continuous glucose monitors. But if you want to choose a pump from one that doesn't work with the CGM, that's just before you just had to accept it. And if you wanted that CGM, you had to pick one of these pumps or vice versa. But what patients are doing is saying, this data should be freely flowing in between my devices. And if the device manufacturers aren't aren't going to do interoperability well, I'm going to do it myself. And I'm willing to carry a small, you know, tic-tac case size box in my pocket to, to allow me the choice between the pump and the CGM and an open source algorithm. And so I really want people to get the, the hacking word, the negative connotation of that out of their mind and think about it exactly as you said earlier, which is building bridges for the data and building bridges for tools to work together to really help solve a problem for the person. And I think the other thing to consider is, you know, I absolutely respect the traditional device manufacturers. They are doing a very important job. However, Historically, they've been built to to build a device that is, uh, you know, tested, regulated, and marketed for a one-size-fits-all. But that one-size-fits-all device may not work for me and my lifestyle. So how do we get these device manufacturers to make something that is flexible enough so that I, as the end user, can turn the knobs and tweak it and get my data the way I want it and the way it is going to be useful for me and my life and my living situation? And at another level, I know hospitals are struggling with this, if a patient comes in with a ton of real-time track data, how does the doctor have time or the skills to review this? You know, how does this data go into the medical record or not? How much of it? What level? There's so many problems around that. But instead of just saying we can't deal with that problem and just ignoring it and hoping it will go away, and I think the solution is to have active conversations and to pilot and to test. Here's different ways to surface and share and record the data and use patients who are actively doing this every day and looking to them for solutions and not just looking to the traditional companies and startups to provide the solutions that may or may not work for the ultimate end users, which are the doctors and the patients. However, trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the healthcare individual, the people that are listening to this podcast, to them, that's utterly terrifying. If you think about 10 years ago when we were eight, nine years ago when we were on Twitter, that was terrifying. Now, what you're talking (laughs) about is you're empowering patients to not only take control of their health, to be active members of their health, but now even cobble together solutions to solve their health. How do you see this impacting, you know, hospitals, health systems? You know, I see a lot of parallels back to the conversations we first had about healthcare organizations, hospitals being on Twitter. And most people nowadays pretty commonly agree it's better to at least be listening and watching and seeing what's going on so you can be aware and prepared for it, even if you're not ready to fully dive into the deep end and talk to patients online. I see the same thing happening, which is patients are out there coming up with ways to view and utilize their data in real time, they're going to be coming into the ER with it. 
how do your emergency room doctors and nurses deal with these devices? Do they turn them off and ignore them and jeopardize care? Do they engage with them? You know, what happens for the primary care doctors? How do they deal with these tools? You know, how can a hospital listen in at a population health level and watch trends for what's happening in their community with this track data? Um, I think the same kind of learning path applies, which is if you stick your head in the sand, that is way more scary because you have no idea what's going on. But I would challenge those working in hospitals and healthcare organizations to start thinking about, okay, what was our path to starting to listen and work in social media? What was our comfort level? What was our trajectory? How did we collaborate with people across the organization to get on board with this? How did we fully embrace becoming a digital organization? Some people are still on that journey, but that same kind of journey applies to thinking about engaged patients and those with you know, Fitbits or other types of trackers and devices. Some patients like you, you might, I don't know if you look at your Fitbit data, you might just be tracking it in the background. Well, that may not be relevant for you, but it could be super useful on a population health level if your data is contributed to that. And so kind of understanding the different types of data too, what is really, really useful and important for a patient in real time, what is useful or not to a doctor in real time, and what is useful for a population health level. But then also thinking about who in our organization is trained and equipped to do that? Do we have the kind of people in an individual doctor's office or at the hospital level who are able to think and use data and use that to help change our organization? This might be another new role that comes up is a data scientist um, or somebody wearing the data hat who can and look at this and think about how it changes, just like there was social media people or digital people being added into the organization over the last decade. Okay, I'm in. Totally in. I'm <laughs> all in. So uh, how do I and other people that want that are listening in, how do they get in to learn more about this? How can people do that and get in touch with you? So I am ironically, or not surprisingly, most commonly found on Twitter. So I'm at Dana M. Lewis on Twitter. There is an open APS hashtag that I encourage you to check out because there's people, kind of the average users who are sharing a lot of their lessons, learns, and experience with this. And then there's also the we are not waiting hashtag. I invite anybody to reach out. I'm happy to have a conversation with anybody about how this might apply to their organization or ideas, things like that. But also don't be afraid to go in and lurk and just kind of soak up and see what kind of people are talking about, what are their frustrations, what are their successes. I think there's a lot of learning that can still be done from lurking in these social media platforms. And patients, again, are basically saying, please listen listen to this, learn from this, take it and apply it however will help your organization, your population. That's awesome, Dana. Well, this has been extremely exciting, I would say, and a great informative interview. Thank you so much for sharing all your expertise. Thanks for having me, and thanks to you and Reed for continuing to share this conversation with healthcare organizations. All right, coming to the end of episode number 85 about wearables. A great conversation, again, timely conversation around the new iteration of the Apple Watch. Uh, and then, uh, like you said, it's, uh, I can't believe Dana was on that long ago, but it actually holds up really well. Um, it's still a good conversation, good interview, and uh, it was wonderful to hear her and have her on again. So we'll have to have her on again, but again, for real. I don't know. At some point. <laughs> Instead of replaying her interview, yeah, we certainly will. She's pretty busy right now because she is going through the FDA official approval process. I think that's kind of cool. And she kind of even alluded to that in her interview. But I still see her name pop up in many articles about wearables and medical devices and really, uh, you know, how she as a patient kind of drove these changes. 
Very inspiring. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I'm sure some of our other show hosts will also be talking about the Apple Watch. And so again, we would encourage you to go over to touchpoint.health, check out the other shows on the network, as well as take our listener survey. Uh, We would certainly appreciate that two minutes of your time. If you would uh, take this couple of questions, you'll see it referenced there on the homepage or any of the episode pages. You'll see a little banner for that. That would be uh, amazing. Um, also rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. And then before we get to recommendations, a quick reminder of a couple of things that we have coming up on the calendar that we would love to connect with you in person. If you're going to be at any of these events, the very first one of those is uh, the Atlas Conference. And you can find out more about that at atlasconference.com. Brought to you by Kairos, our good friends over there. This is going to be in Boston, October 15th through the 17th. Uh, conference about patient access. And uh, so it should be a, a cool group. We'll, of course, be recording there. And I uh, would love to connect with you if you're going to be there. Absolutely. And the second event that we're going to be at is a few weeks later at Scottsdale, Arizona. The Healthcare Internet Conference from November 5th through the 7th. That is a great annual conference about all things internet and healthcare, digital healthcare, this variety of different uh, speakers. I'm going to be there not only doing a workshop, but uh, Reed and I will be there recording podcasts. And it's just a great event. Uh, you can learn a little bit more about that over at hcic.net. There you go. And then finally, that very next week, uh, we're going to zip back across the country to the East Coast of Jacksonville, Florida for the Mayo Clinic Social Media Network Annual Conference. Uh, so that's November 15th through 17th. You can find out more about that at socialmedia.mayoclinic.org. Again, that's their annual conference. And there's a few additional educational opportunities that, that day before on the 13th that you might want to check out as well. Anyway, full calendar this fall. Look forward to seeing everybody and yeah, let, let us know if you're going to be there. Uh, we'd love to love to connect. Recommendations. What do you, what do you have? Reed, it was a couple of weeks ago you recommended our Netflix show, The Ozarks. Ozark. The Ozarks would be something different. It's probably like a documentary or something. <laughs> the Ozark, season two, which, by the way, totally binge watch. Really great, great season. Very, very dark. I'm going to recommend another Netflix uh, show that is almost the exact antithesis of what Ozark is. Okay. (laughs) And that is The Great British Baking Show. Oh, boy. Have you seen this? No. Exact opposite. Where Ozark is a dark, gritty story about getting down into the South and lots of really unsavory things that are happening in that show. And it's so good. The great British breaking show is actually a reality show where they bring together the top bakers across, uh, the, across the UK. And every week they do a bake off. They do three different types of things. One week it could be about breads and another, it could be about cookies or biscuits as they call them. Or, and then next week it could be about caramel or whatever it might be. And it's an elimination show. And I mean, some of the most, polite ways of doing sort of like a reality TV show competitive. I mean, when people are voted off, they're just like so consoling and they're like, Oh, well I deserved it. And you guys are so great. And you know, it's, they're so polite and they're drinking tea, riveting television. I'm telling you, it is so good. We, I love it. I love it. I can binge watch that all day long. Now that was originally, I mean, in the BBC, PBS Mm. picked it up and Netflix just released a whole new season. That's only available on Netflix 
totally love watching it and i recommend that you do too and read you, sh- you should look at a- at least one episode and uh, tell me what your thoughts are mm, i can't make any promises but i'll see what i can do <laughs> i'll see what i can do <laughs> what uh, you got today I am recommending the Cobalt 3 8 inch 50 foot polyhybrid air hose that's on a retractable wheel. So uh, you can pick this up at Lowe's. Cobalt, uh, for those that shop at Lowe's, know that that is uh, kind of like Craftsman is to Sears. It's kind of like their, their house brand, so to speak. So Cobalt Tools. And so this is a retractable air hose uh, that I have in my shop that is attached to a uh, air compressor, of course. And so I got tired of having to pull out an air hose and drag it around and wheel it back up and trying to get it and figure out where you're gonna put it and all that kind of good stuff. I wanted a a retractable one. And um, yeah, so I like it. I've had it for, uh, I don't know, a week or so maybe. And I got it mounted in the garage. I can pull it down, attach tools to it, you know, whatever. Um, and yeah, it's great, man. You know, a little-known fact, read is that some of the contestants on The Great British Baking Show actually use that to spray edible dye on their cakes when they decorate it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you just made that up, but that's okay. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I was trying to tie them together. <laughs> uh, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Um, well, cool. Awesome. Uh, two great recommendations this week. Completely different. And um, yeah, so there you go. Go out, visit the website, um, let us hear from you online. You, you're always good about tracking us down on LinkedIn, Twitter, those types of things. Let us hear from you. Uh, we enjoy the feedback. We've got a few episodes uh, coming down the pipe based on recommendations folks have given us. And so please keep those coming. We certainly uh, appreciate everything and all the sponsors. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.